What makes a great film? If you ask Steven Spielberg, after the screenplay, the most essential thing is casting. And when it comes to the success of his Oscar-nominated film, The Color Purple, based on the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel by Alice Walker, Spielberg credits casting director Ruben Cannon for bringing him, quote, many, many, many great choices. All my life I had to fight. I had to fight my daddy. I had to fight my uncles. I had to fight my brothers. Girl, child ain't safe in a family man's. But I never thought I had to fight in my own house. That is Oprah Winfrey as Sophia in a pivotal scene from The Color Purple, which marked Winfrey's acting debut. WLS-TV, Chicago. Back at the time that Cannon was casting for the film, Oprah was hosting a local morning show called AM Chicago. Good morning. I'm Oprah, and welcome to AM Chicago. Of course, Quincy Jones, who was producing The Color Purple, was in Chicago for a copyright infringement case involving Michael Jackson's song, The Girl Is Mine. And before heading to court in the morning, he turned on the TV. And we thought you'd be interested in seeing what goes on behind the scenes of putting together a... It was almost like, you know, divine guidance to put him there for a reason. This is Reuben Cannon. While casting The Color Purple, he was also working on comedian Richard Pryor's semi-autobiographical movie, Jojo Dancer, Your Life is Calling. I was in New York auditioning young kids to play Richard Pryor's little boy because I couldn't find any kids in L.A. that could curse <laughs> with the edge I needed for someone to play the Richard Pryor's little boy. Right. They were all, you know, nice. They would they would put R at the end of uh, a certain ML. word. Right, right. Uh-huh. And then uh, Quincy called. Quincy was also working on JoJo Dancer. And he said, Ruben, I'm in Chicago. I'm looking at a local talk show with a young lady named Oprah Winfrey that could be right for Sophia. I said, well, I'm going to Chicago when I finish my auditions in New York. I'll look her up. He said, okay. So I called her office and spoke to her producer and said, I'm coming in. I go to Chicago. I'm from Chicago. And it was so cold that my mother wouldn't even come downtown to meet me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and as Oprah herself told the story in her Masterclass series. I go to this audition on a day in Chicago where it was 72 below zero. So cold they had ropes out to keep people falling down. I had a cold. But here's where their stories start to differ a bit. And she said, I know it's just for color purple. And I'm destined to play Sophia. I said, really, why? I said, because Harpo spelled backwards is Oprah. I said, oh, I'll be sure to tell Alfie Woodard that because she thinks she's also destined to play it. Oprah read for the role of Sophia, wife of Harpo. And Cannon says he told her he'd be in touch. So we part ways and she starts calling the office. And this is the part she tells. She says, I call Ruben Cannon's office and he figured out, picked up the phone and he says, why are you calling me? You don't call me, I call you. I call you. So I hung up the phone and I knew I'm not gonna get the part. And she's told this story all over, you know, <laughs> it's on YouTube. In fact, she even caught me at the 25th anniversary of Color Purple when everybody was on stage telling their stories about how they were came to be cast. And I said, you know, I, I, it's possible, I wouldn't say those words, but I might have said something like that. Mm. And she brought the camera over and caught, you know, so <laughs> it's not a confession. Uh-huh. Um, but that was, you know, I never would be insensitive to an actor, an artist. But I would always let, felt it better let people know where they stand. You know, rather than you go around believing you have a part mm -hmm. that's been cast or it's going to go somewhere else. And um, and it was her destiny, ultimately, her, hers to play. 
Oprah even left Cannon a little memento from the film. And I have a script where Oprah wrote, I know you want an Alfred, but I got the part, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> Welcome to the Academy Museum Podcast, Close Up on Casting. I'm Jacqueline Stewart. In this episode, my conversation with Ruben Cannon, the first Black casting director. The films that he's done, I mean, why do fools fall in love? The color purple, putting Angela Bassett and Lawrence Fishburne and what's love got to do with it? I mean, the list goes on and on and folks don't know who he is. How he got his start in casting, broke boundaries, and why, partly because of the lack of recognition for the work casting directors do, he ultimately changed professions. My name is Ruben Cannon. I am a veteran TV and film producer, and I began my career as a casting director. And that casting career, the success of my casting career, allowed me to uh, transition into producing. So I want to talk about how you got started. But first, as a fellow Chicagoan, let's talk about where you grew up in Chicago and where you went to school. Southside. I went to, you know, Southside, went to Dunbar uh-huh. High School. And I spent a little time at Southeast City College. And um, I've only had four jobs in my entire life that were not connected to entertainment, including my paper route, which is connected to entertainment in a way because I tell the story that everything I need to know about my job at Universal Studios as a male person or part of the Universal Studios training program, which basically are blurry male, I learned in Chicago, my paper route. Because there are three fundamentals when you're delivering newspapers in Chicago. One is delivered papers every day without fail, no excuses. No matter the weather. No matter the weather. And as you know, the weather in Chicago <laughs> is very severe. Number two, get to know your customers. Because if you don't get to know your customers, you will not be able to collect the monies that you're owed. And number three, most important, don't get robbed. So how does those basic elements apply to Hollywood? Well, I was hired at Universal Studios to work in the mailroom. And... Deliver the mail every day without excuses. Get to know your customers, even though your customers are Alfred Hitchcock and Paul Newman and other Lou Wasserman. You still have to know them and because you're going to need a reference at some point to move out of the mailroom. And number three, don't let anyone rob you of your dreams. So let's talk about that transition that you made from Chicago to Los Angeles. What, did you, what was L.A. like when you got out here? Well, in 70, 1970, 71. So, um, it was... Right after the, the Watts riot. So the place was teeming with a certain degree of, you can say consciousness, but I don't know if it was consciousness so much as it was uh, an effort on L.A. to try to right itself, to create more, now we call it diversity, or more inclusiveness. There was an effort for that. And I think that probably led to perhaps my being hired in the mailroom. So you're at Universal. Right. And while you were there, were there mentors you had? Or how did it work in terms of giving you an orientation to the industry? It wasn't many, believe it or not. There was a, an older gentleman who worked in, in the custodian department, Willie. And Willie, while he was, you know, basically a janitor, he had such wisdom. And he'd been paying attention. And, you know, he went back to the W.C. Field days. Huh. And having him tell me stories about the various factions on the studio lot who to look out for. So it really was right out of the, the African diaspora tradition of sharing knowledge and wisdom. 
Mm. So, so my, if there was a mentor in that way, it was Willie. But there were also, there were very few brothers there, very few black folks. I mean, there was a guy in personnel, Jim Harris, who was the one who hired me. And to give you a history of how I was hired, my uncles had given me a strategy for how to get a job that had never failed me in Chicago. And that is, if you go to the place that you wish to be hired the day after payday, and you introduce yourself to the person that's going to hire you because he's going to inevitably, and these are blue-collar jobs, he's going to be short because someone would have gone out the night before and partied, mm. and therefore, and you're there. And I got my job as a busboy at a restaurant that way. I got my job as a steel mill for the summer that way. Mm. So I thought, I'm going to try this strategy here at Universal Studios. So I'm talking to Jim Harris and personnel. And after I fill out my application, and he said, I said, uh, Mr. Harris, uh, you might tell me what day do people get paid here? And he looked at me like, you know, I haven't been, you, you don't even have a job. What about payday? And I, he says, well, we have different unions and different guilds here. So every day people are being paid here. I said, okay, I'll be here every day. And I did. So I rode the bus from Crenshaw and Adams every day and sat in the reception area of the personnel department at Universal and waited for someone not to show up. I didn't care what department it was. Wow. If give me on the lot, I'll find my way. So by mid-December, I'm, you know, I said, I need to break this up. So let me spend half my day at Warner Brothers. You know, they are filling an application, a half my, and the other half of my day, Universal. And I'm down to $28, and it's, it's uh, the day before New Year's Eve. So Jim Harris sticks his head out the door and says, Ruben, there are two male room employees that are stuck at the Big Bears. They went skiing. They can't get back in time to bag the mail. Can you help us out? So I went through that door for the first time onto the lot, and I was being hired as a temporary worker because you needed a college degree to be in the mailroom. I didn't have a college degree. And that temporary position turned into a full position. And then six months later, I was offered a job to be co-head of personnel in the tour division. And when I inquired as how many people had come from the tours to the actual filmmaking process, the answer was no. Now, these were early days of tours, so I chose to stay in the mailroom a little bit longer. And um, there was a position that was posted. The mailroom was the recruitment center for all the, the first place that the studio would look when they were looking to add staff, whether it's the visual effects department. And so there was a posting for a casting department trainee. And I spent time in theater working with actors. That was what first got me interested in entertainment, mm -hmm. the magic of creating and expressing through the arts. So I applied for the position in, as a trainee in the casting department, along with two other fellow male boys. So those are the three resumes that were sitting on the desk of the head of the casting department, Ralph Winters. And, and it comes back to the story about get to know your customers. I had met Ralph delivering mail because in the mail room, you deliver mail to the entire lot. And it really goes to show you how one person can impact the entire industry. So Ralph Winters said, Ruben, I've seen you here delivering mail. Everyone in the office here seems to like you. If I had career ambitions, I'd have to hire one of the other two gentlemen because of their connections. Their leather recommendations are from very influential people in the industry. But on paper, you're more qualified because of your background. But because I'm going to retire in three years, I have the luxury of doing what's right and what's fair. And in, in doing so, he hired me. I became the first black casting director in the history of Hollywood, a trainee, then, and then became Universal's top casting director. 
and also moonlighting on the side. My moonlighting was was I was casting Sanford the Sun under the table. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> because Red Fox wanted the black casting director. So yeah, okay. It's like you know, the options are Ruben, 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 right? Amazing. So um so I was moonlighting on the side and then Warner Brothers called and said we would you know they almost double my salary and I'd be in charge of Warner Brothers television casting department. So which meant that I could staff myself. And then doing so, I hired the second black casting director, a woman named Eileen Knight, who was working for Joe Papp in New York. And Eileen, she hired a brother named Mel Johnson as her assistant. So, and, and in the meanwhile, we had Robbie Reed in our office as an intern when she was going to Hampton. So we changed the complexion of what had been previously no black casting directors. So Ralph's actions, along with my commitment, to knowing what I wanted to accomplish outside just for myself, but for the culture. Coming up, my conversation with Ruben Cannon, the first Black casting director, continues. So let's talk about your auditioning process. What are the things that you try to put in place in terms of making actors feel comfortable, or how do you how do you approach it? I would first try to engage as a conversation to make them feel comfortable, because I know the anxiety that surrounds the audition, and so I find out more about them. I mean, the part of, the part I enjoyed most about casting was just finding out about the actors' personal lives. I mean, I've interviewed people who've come before they went, before they became an actor. What was your life like? So I would try to create an, a comfortable environment because I want them to do the best work. I mean, I want to get the job done so I can move on to my next project. I'm not looking to delay it, uh, the process. So, you know, there's a, there's a metaphor I use to, to determine what I call the Ray Charles syndrome. When Ray Charles sings America the Beautiful, a song you've heard all your life, it's like hearing it for the first time. Yes. Same with dialogue. When you audition, you hear the dialogue read by any number of actors. But someone will come in and say those words. And it's like Ray Charles singing America the Beautiful. You will hear it for the first time in a new way. Mm-hmm. And that's what I would look for. I would look for that Ray Charles moment. And when it happens, it's just, you know, you know, because the room changes, the air in the room changes. You know, and if you're by yourself, it changes. Incredible. Is there any particular example that comes to well, mind? Well, there's several examples. There's, there's one... Uh, I did the casting for the pilot of Moonlighting. My name is David Addison, and your name Maddie is... Hayes. Maddie Hayes. And don't I know you? No, I don't think we've met. Now, wait a second. Can't fool me. The eyes don't lie. Not these babies. Photographic. See something once, it's locked in there forever. Really? I and it was a very... In- Moonlighting was a very extensive talent search to find that character. And um, I had hired six other casting directors around the country, and I, including Canada, to find this role. So I'd seen a lot of actors, you know, 1,500 or more had actually auditioned. And so finally, and I was doing auditions myself with uh, Glenn Karen. And finally, uh, Bruce Willis came in. I'd been in New York to see a very child, a play that he was understudying, and the actor he was understudying, uh, Ed Harris. Mm-hmm. First of all, Sam Shepard's plays are very intense and a challenge for any actor. So I knew that he was, you know, if he could do that, must have some skills. And so he wasn't on stage that night. So his agent called me, Jane Delaney, and said, Ruben, you didn't see Bruce Willis in New York. He's in town. Can you see him now? I said, yeah, have him come to my office at, you know, 12 o'clock. I'm doing two pilots. I'm doing uh, a Steve Cannell pilot. 
and I'm doing moonlighting. So he came in, I looked at his resume, and I said, look, I'm going to give you, I'm not going to read you, because if you can do Barry Chow, I'm pretty sure I know you, you have skills. But can you meet me at 3 o'clock at ABC to meet the director of this pilot? So he came in, and it was a list of other actors, and it was a Ray Charles moment happened. Huh. I immediately got on the phone and called his agent and said, I want to put a two-week two exclusive hold on him while we go through the process of networks and blah, blah, blah. And um, within that two-week period, we took him to the network, and we all felt we had the guy. The network, so the president of the network of production said, Ruben, obviously you don't know what a leading man is. This guy's a character actor. So I want you to step aside off the project. Yeah, he got fired. And um, I said, no, he's, he's, he's not a leader. He's a star. If his balls may be too big for TV, but he's a star. He says, well, while he's being a star, I'm going to hire Lynn Stallmaster to take over this project. And you can, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get back to you. All right. So I knew Lynn. I said, Lynn, take that money because I've seen the world. There's nobody out there. Okay. So while, they, while Lynn was doing his so-called search, Sybil agreed to do an, to do an audition, on-camera audition with Bruce. Mm-hmm. A performance, actually. Played a scene that culminated in, in them dancing to Stevie Wonder, My Sharia Moore. It was a, a magical scene. So you saw the chemistry uh-huh. with them going from their spat and their little riff. So we took that back to the network. They, after they saw there was somebody else out there, showed that to including the, at the time the president of, of ABC. And they said, well, it's just nice, but let's see what the audience, let's do a test research. So they took it to audience research screening. Well, you watch this man on TV every week? And the answer was yes. I got, you know, I got my bonus. I got, you know, <laughs> I did the series for a couple mm. of years. And mm. Incredible. Incredible. So for quite a long time, you were the only black casting right. director right. in Hollywood. And I wonder how you felt about that. I mean, you made it clear that there were others you wanted to bring in. But during that period, was this pointed out to you a lot? Well, it was obvious. And, and I knew, and it just spoke to me, the, the historical racism of Hollywood, but also knew that it was a trial. I was a test balloon. That if I messed this up, who knows how long it would be before another one, right? So there was that weight. There was the, 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 press, the cultural pressure as well as the industry pressure. And so I was very mindful. Unfortunately, to talk, you know, about having run in Chicago, I just knew how to compartmentalize my life in a way that I could focus. And uh, my world was pretty much locked into focusing on making sure I became the most knowledgeable person in the room about actors on TV and two plays a week and two films a week. So I had a pretty steady diet built around, uh, you know, just gaining knowledge about talent. Yeah. Were there moments where you really faced explicit forms of discrimination or, you know, more subtle microaggressions? Just more, more, I guess you'd call microaggression, but it's like people, it would be a shock because once again, the historical, the history of racism were the, the assumption you go to an audition, they'd never seen a black casting director before. So, you know, so when those who finally came in to see me, the agent would send them out to audition. And very often, the agents, I don't think, said to them, you're going to meet Ruben Cannon, and he's black. I don't think they, <laughs> they I don't think they, they made that add-on. Uh-huh. So the actor would come in, and, and it might have been thrown, you know, to see. And some would actually say, oh, I, I didn't, didn't know you were black. I guess the name Ruben could imply any others possible, and... And I said, is it a problem? Well, no, 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 no. But you could, you know, so, no, no, so, you know. Although there was one guy who said it was a problem. Really? 
he said it was, he said, I have a problem with that. He was a devout you know, racist, and he said he didn't want to read. Wow. So I called his agent up, and you know, I think his agent might have dropped him out something after that. Mm. Yeah. What was the reaction of black actors? Well, they, they were overjoyed, and some, and many, but it was, they were overjoyed, but then they expected me to absolutely just flood Universal Studios with, you know. With, the hookup. He, he said, totally, totally, <laughs> totally. And, and to this day, there's stories, people say, Ruben, we would sit around and have, people would sit around and have dinners. Yeah, Ruben didn't hire me, Ruben didn't hire me. And I mean, the stories would go on and on. And uh, Robert Guillaume tells a story. And I very often, you know, there's a difference between the, the myth or the story. Let the myth, if the myth is good, I let it live, right? <laughs> so he says, I did the casting for Roots 2, The Next Generation. Lynn Somass did Roots 1, I did Roots 2. And Robbie Guillaume said, Ruben, he tells us this, I went to see Ruben Cannon, because I said to him, I to let him know I want to be in Roots 2. And Ruben said to me, Robert, you're too dignified to be a slave. Now, I, I never said that, but he said I said it, and, I, and the story, <laughs> it's a good story, so I let it ride, you know. <laughs> But there, there's the, you know, there's all those myths about, you know, that of what I could or could not do. I was very aware of my, I could have influence, and, and, and very often my presence being there would allow them to think, oh, that doctor could be a black person. And, you know, we were casting, I was casting a pilot once, and uh, Lazarus Syndrome, and the usual suspects were on the list, former TV series stars. But I knew that Lou Gossett was looking for a series. And I, of course, I said to myself, when do I bring his name up? Mm. Do I bring it up in the beginning or do I bring it up after all these other guys say no? So that's just even that type of, you know, thinking in terms of how to calibrate the, my, 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 my plan in, in terms of when it's going to be best uh, received. So I decided not to put his name on the list in the beginning, but let's let's get three turndowns. Yes. So we got three turndowns, and I say, you know, there's a there's a great way to do this show with an actor who has great marquee, great skill, and Lou Gossett. And it was with Bill Blinn and, and Jerry Thorpe. They loved the idea, and even they said, well, how do we introduce this to the network? And then, so at the time, I think, it was a, they introduced to the head of casting. She was receptive to it. You know, Kalu had won the Oscar for Officer Gentleman. And that's so, but I'm sure if I had I not been there, that wouldn't have happened. It was my, you know, they would have, would have, they would have gone for the least objectionable white, of choice among white actors. Yeah. Yeah. Never would have occurred to Never them. Never would have occurred. And, and, and as a result, he had a black wife. Sheila Frazier played his wife. Black family. So. Uh-huh. It opens things up. That's really powerful. Okay. I want to talk about your transition to producing. Why did you make that that decision? What was it that made you want to go into that side well, of the well, industry? So, I, you know, the thing is, casting directors, you know, have, have almost an un, unheralded heroes of the whole filmmaking process. They, it is, you know, it, it really annoys me when I see people accept the awards. They think about the incredible cast. Well, who put that cast there? I mean, do you hear it over and over again? I owe to the to my cast. Well, where did that cast come from? They just walking off the street? Yeah. They should be acknowledged. Why do you think it's underappreciated and underacknowledged? Because once the work is done, the, the focus then goes on the actor. You know, it's almost like your work is done in the shadows. You know, once the once it's completed, it's like the home you're living in that was built. You don't sell it was built by, you know, you don't give the architect credit. So the architect of of of, of the of the movie from a casting's perspective 
is uh, is just not acknowledged. Just you know, work is done and you move on. Mm-hmm. So it was part of some of that, the, the you know, the, the lack of appreciation for the craft and the work that goes into it, but also the, just the financial that that you know that you put that work in and the work lives on, but you don't get any ongoing residuals. So whenever I would work with uh, on a movie with a producer, I would say like I'm I'm the casting director, but also a student. My aspiration is to produce films, and and they would welcome that. So I would be there on days when my work was done. I would still go to set and observe. So the first opportunity came, I was casting for Billboard, and I'd cast two projects for Billboard. So Bill Borden called me and said, Ruben, we have a project uh, that we'd like for you to direct. I said, well, you know, this, I really don't have, I'd rather, I like being the kingmaker, not necessarily the king. But uh, what's the project? He says, uh, The Million Man March. What if we were to do a movie about a group of men that embark on a bus from Los Angeles as strangers and form relationships and partnership, friendships? before they get to Washington. I said, I like that. I like because there's a chance to show diversity among black men. I like I said, but, but it's not for me to direct. Let me call Spike and see if he might be interested. So I call and pitch the idea to Spike. Spike says, well, what are they going to be doing? Are they going to be singing on the bus? <laughs> you know, I said, no, it's not a musical. It's, you know, <laughs> it's a road trip with a bunch of, you know. I said, I said look, I think it's a great, it's a great movie that we could, we could put together a group of wonderful actors. And he said, then he came around, he says, you know what, you're, you're right, but let's do it this way. If we're gonna do it in the spirit of the march, it should be financed by black men. And, um, and let's, let's try to do it in, in time to have a release on the anniversary of the first anniversary. And he says, so, and we, so if it's gonna be financed by, why don't you, to, you're in Hollywood, you take the actors, I'll take the athletes. Okay, mm. so if you see the movie, Jacqueline, if you see the movie, it says 15 black men productions. The movie was financed by 15 black men. First time in history of Hollywood, movies have been financed totally by black men. And, um, but the four actors that were investors is Wesley Snipes, Danny Glover, Robbie Guillaume, and Will Smith. Brothers, can I have your ears, please? And if you want to go to the Sloss and Swap meet, the Brentwood Mansion, the L.A. Zoo, or the La Brea Tar Pits, then your black ass is on the wrong bus. <laughs> this bad boy is going to Washington, D.C. for the Million oh. Man March. And we made the movie, like I said, it's, it's, uh, it's really it's timeless, holds up. and yeah. It's one of my favorite, because it, it accomplished what we talked about in terms of diversity. And the issues that are discussed are still, you know, in the forefront of conversations. That's right. When you are bringing people up, I wonder what kind of advice you give to people of color, to women mm -hmm. who want to become casting directors. I would say there is no one way, one pathway to having a career in casting. A good memory helps. An appreciation for the craft of acting. Appreciation and respect for acting craft of acting and for the actors so that's that's pretty much it but it's um i'm just you know still grateful to the industry now those of in fact i was telling someone i said you know i know what work looks like i had four uncles and one of them worked as a bricklayer but not just a brick mason he built manholes so i would go to school and i'd look down and see uncle roy down there right 
So when people talk about work, <laughs> what we do, I mean, that it, 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 granted, stress is stress, but actual work. That's right. I know what that looks like. Yep. And so we're so fortunate. I mean, sometimes we'll be in a meeting creating a project, and it's a comedy, and we spend eight hours laughing. So we get paid eight hours. What kind of, this is not work. We should be paying someone else to do this, for the privilege of doing this. So it's been a, it's been a blessed career. I'm still grateful. It's fantastic. Yeah, your influence has been so remarkable. Thank you for inviting me to come down. Thank you, Ruben. Thank you. Thank Jack. you so much. Thank you. That's it for this episode of the Academy Museum Podcast, Close Up on Casting. Thanks so much for listening. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to make sure you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. I'm your host, Jacqueline Stewart. I'm also director and president of the Academy Museum in Los Angeles. I invite you to visit the museum to learn more about the arts, sciences, and artists of movie making. The Academy Museum podcast is written and hosted by me, Jacqueline Stewart. The show is a production of Elias Studios in collaboration with the Academy Museum. Shayna Naomi Crockmall is the Vice President of Podcasts, and Antonia Sarahito is the Executive Producer for Elias Studios. Catherine Mailhouse is the Elias Director of Content Development. This episode was produced and edited by Monica Bushman. Our other producer is Victoria Alejandro. Antonia Sarahito is our Senior Producer and Story Editor. Mixing by E. Scott Kelly. Our theme song is by Nicholas Bertel. Our podcast website, elias.com slash podcasts, is designed by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at Elias Studios. Our gratitude to assistant curator Nicholas Barlow and associate curator Dara Jaffe, curators of the museum's performance gallery. And to one of our inaugural assistant curators, Anna Santiago, who co-conceived the performance gallery and has since moved on from the museum. Additional thanks to the team at the Academy Museum, including Lindsay Deming, Adriana Fernandez, Molly Robbins, Kimberly Stevens, and Stephanie Sykes. Our podcast graphics were designed by Jacob Beaver Mui and McKenna Ward. Thanks to the team at Elias Studios, including Jens Campbell, Taylor Kaufman, Sabir Brara, Kristen Hayford, Kristen Muller, Andy Orozco, Michael Constantino, and Leo G. The Academy Museum Podcast is a production of Elias Studios. Academy Museum digital engagement platforms, including this podcast, are sponsored by Bloomberg Philanthropies. This podcast is supported by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. 